Hello and welcome. Find the outside the podcast, Tim Mary and Tuesday Ryan Hart. There we are. <laughs> Hello. I mean, it's not that I don't know my name, just to be clear. I do know my name. It's just usually, you know, you might say Tim and Tuesday, or you might say my name is all. I know. And you just blend for it and pause. It was awesome. I it just took a minute. I'm a little slow on the uptake. That's all right. We're all good. We're here. We're here today. Mm-hmm. So we are here to introduce the podcast recording we have with Colleen Magna and Mahmoud Sunday, both of who are partners in in Rios. Yeah, yeah. And so Rios Partners is one of the few organizations out there that we would consider kind of like working in the same field as us, engaging in some of the same questions. And and they've got a global reach and they've been around longer than us. You know, we reached out to Adam, not only to be on this pod, but to provide us advice as we've started the outside. And so it's just wonderful to have Colleen and uh, Mahmoud coming in and working with us on the pod and diving into conversation. And I've known Colleen since, I don't know, my early 20s. And it was really funny when we got on the pod because the kind of African hanging, Mm -hmm. boutique hanging that's behind me, I bought when I was over a market in Zimbabwe when I was over there for our friend Mayan's 30th birthday and Colleen was there too. Oh my gosh. I must have been 27 or something. Oh my goodness. So it was really funny. So I was like, oh Colleen, probably, you know, and then I'd done a trip to South Africa and I was over there doing some training around um, kind of using theatre for work within community had done all this work around Augusto Boal. And so I'd had this invitation mm-hmm. to go do some training there. And uh, Colleen and Mila Boyer, who were over there, were part of that. And that was the trip at which I decided to ask my wife to marry me on. And then I came <gasps> home and asked Katie to marry me. Yeah. No way. So all these, all these people, all these stories, they interweave, don't they? That's amazing. Yeah, but it was, maybe I'll set you up. So it, it was lovely to meet with another pairing of practitioners who were working across race and gender in how they worked. And even in terms of how we set up the podcast, you know, Mm -hmm. do you remember like talking through which voice would go first Mm -hmm. and like how often that's a conversation for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was just as natural for them too, you know, and you could just see that, Oh, they've done some of the thoroughness in their relationship and in their consciousness of how they work together. That feels so familiar to you and I, what was your, what was your experience? Yeah. I mean, obviously the work they're doing is amazing. And so it was great to hear about that, but I did find myself feel much more struck by their relationship and their being in the work together and how differently they kind of described their work. And yet it was very aligned. And so you could, again, it was, it was the same thing you've just said. You could see how much work they'd done on working together. Yeah. Right. And that that was a key element of what they're bringing to the table and how generous they were with each other. Right. Which also speaks to a friendship and not just kind of a strategy and a strategic relationship. But I felt like they really cared about each other and admired each other's work, which feels when we talk about cross racial teams, we talk a lot about communication, we talk a lot about strategy. But there was that element that I think can be lost, which was like genuine care and admiration for each other and support and seeing each other's gifts. And I think, you know, just to say out loud, we were just that same team that I did the cartwheel with today. They are also a cross racial executive team. And that makes a difference. And when there is care in those spaces and 
real genuine admiration and support, it just feels like the possibility for the work takes off. Absolutely. And so that was part of what I just loved to hear with Colleen and Mahmoud and, and every place we're going. And my friends, they have been in some work, mm-hmm. like remarkable pieces of work at scale, tackling, you know, seemingly intractable problems. And you can check it out. If you go to the Rios Partners website, right, which is riospartners.com, and you just click on our work, you can see the type of work those two are involved in. And you can also search on the website for Colleen or Mahmoud, and you can find some of their writing, some of their reflections, and some of their work. So they... They really talk in this pod both relationally about how they work with each other. They talk strategically about how they engage with the work. But in some ways, they don't do a lot of like specific storytelling. Yeah, that's right. So I just want to I just want to say to you, like, mm-hmm. like, like, hear it from the point of view of these are granular practitioners, day to day, moment to moment, in the work with each other as they walk down the street and with very large clients so like hear it from that point of view even though in some ways they they talk high level without referencing their work and their direct stories and if you want to know more about it go check out the website go look into these two a little bit because you will be you'll be amazed by what you discover that's right enjoy brilliant enjoy the pod we certainly did and we look forward to hearing from them and oh there's some juicy stuff in there as well also just i mean i know we're meant to be giving the pod over but when when (laughs) colleen starts talking about how 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 she feels truth and reconciliation has failed Mm -hmm. and that we need a completely different approach now i mean anyway I, i think there's a lot for us to learn from there from a south african perspective from the perspective of these two practitioners so enjoy folks Hello, folks. We are very excited to have Colleen and Mahmoud with us from South Africa. Both of them are leaders within Rios Partners, who is, you know, people who are involved in similar work to us all over the world. So it's very exciting to have you with us. Just before we dive into the conversation, because we've been chatting before we even got on the pod and beginning to be like, oh, these are the things we could chat about. But before we dive in, I think it would be lovely just to introduce you a bit to the listeners on the pod. So could we kick off just a little bit of like who you are and your work together and maybe a little bit of what you're up to? Sure, Tim. And it's first, it's great to be on the show with you and Tuesday. I've been listening to the show for some time, as I said, and uh, myself and Colleen are, are joining you in one room in my office in Johannesburg. So nice. Yeah. So a little bit about my background. I am South African. I've grown up and educated in South Africa. I became a teenager around the time of our uh, democratic transition and so sort of went through my teenage years in the euphoria of, you know, the new South Africa and um, started my uh, career in the corporate sector, working on large-scale organizational change projects, as well as quite technical systems-oriented projects, and realized that that's not where I want to be, became quite disillusioned with the corporate space, and spent a lot of time trying to figure out where I wanted to be. And... um, found myself having spent time in the corporate sector, in government and in civil society and sort of broadly the impact sector at the intersection of all of those sectors in the work of RIOS doing systems change work. And so I've been with RIOS for six years now, going on seven years and um, find myself quite at home 
year and looking forward to the next 20. Mm, wow. That says something nice about Rios. Yeah, that's really great to hear, Mahmoud. And, you know, maybe we can dig a little bit more into our collective story, Mahmoud and I. But um, my background is um, I have also been very shaped by South Africa's history. I grew up as a teenager still in the days of apartheid and moved from a government school to a non-racial Catholic school in high school and just got such a, it was such a shock to my system about what was really going on. That was my sort of awakening. And the big thing that was going on in in 1986 was uh, there was a state of emergency. And so um, black kids couldn't come to school because townships were blocked. And, you know, we'd had half a year of schooling together and then suddenly half the class isn't there. And, you know, I just remember that was like quite formative. And I don't know that as a personality, I'm hugely confrontational. That's why I'm a facilitator. But it was very jarring for me and it, and it sort of engendered some activism. From a younger age, I, I got involved and then I had the opposite, you know, sort of experience going to university where things were still same old, same old. And I, I found that really difficult. And so I, I sought out communities of people through organizations and politics and other things. And it was in that time that I started university before our first democratic elections and I ended university when we had our first democratic elections. In fact, I was allowed to vote. It was very formative and all the student organizations that I joined were really still very much my network today. And there are South Africans who are really still believing in the South African project, but muddling through because it's not working. And it led me to a number of organizations that I've worked for, including how I met both of you through Pioneers of Change, and then into a business school where I set up a center for leadership and dialogue, a business school called Gibbs. That's where I met Mahmoud when he was doing his MBA. No way, that's cool. Yeah, and then I was um, invited into setting up an organization together with some colleagues to address the world's biggest challenges. I mean, it sounded pretty audacious, and I didn't know you know, 80% of the people that I was going into business with, but the people that I was partnering with were people that I'd been involved in through Pioneers of Change and through ISEC and other organizations. And we started Rios Partners. And uh, you have interviewed Adam, so you know some of that story. But just maybe one other like anecdotal story that influenced me was when I was a student, I came across the Montfleur scenarios, which were the scenarios that Adam came to South Africa to facilitate as his first scenario exercise. And I was like so inspired because a lot of the people that were part of that team were my heroes. And so I sort of followed him from a distance. And uh, yeah, it is quite remarkable that we're working together on on doing similar kinds of work. And here we are today. And Mahmoud and I have, you know, in some ways really gone through uh, the fire of what do we want the South African and African office of RIOS to represent and to be and what kind of work we want to do in systems change. And our work at the moment centers around a few themes. So typically we bring groups of stakeholders together who don't like each other and disagree. Sounds familiar. (laughs) We have to work together to work stuff out. And in our specific context, you know, inequality is massive and it's stuck and it's getting worse. And so all topics related to that about access, economic access, Mm -hmm. justice, racial equity, And also security, Uh, many of the countries we work in are insecure from a governance perspective. And 
the systems are falling apart. And so how do we support a reinvention of new kinds of relationships and institutions to collaborate? I'm really, I'm, I'm struck by so much of what you said. I don't know if you could tell I have my notebook out. You just said, what do we want Rios in South Africa and Africa to be? And what's the work we want to do? And I'm just looking at you and knowing that folks won't have a visual. And so I'm just aware, just to kind of say out loud, you're a cross-racial, cross-gender team. There are probably multiple other differences I'm not picking up on visually too. But I'm curious, like, what could we start there? What is it? I'd just love to hear the two of you. It doesn't have to be a beautiful, perfect articulation, but what is it that you all want to be and do? as an organization, but even as a partnership, you know, the two of you apparently work together quite closely. And so what does that look like? So I'll, I'll start the ball rolling because Mahmoud, I think has got, you know, he thinks a lot about the future. Let me say that. I think a bit more about the present. And so I think the one theme that I'm going to bring up is we often work across geographies on issues that are intersectional. And so what becomes quite visible is the, the dynamics globally that play out locally in the, the kinds of groups that we bring together. So, for example, a funder from the US or from Europe will fund a project around an issue that is affecting a particular African context. But that dynamic, that power dynamic plays out as much as it's a good intention. It actually reinforces the current power dynamic. And so what we hope for is to change that dynamic. Like, how do we, as a South African, African-based organization, make visible to our clients and the groups that we work with how this dynamic is so systemic? And what do we need to name and what do we need to shift? Like, how do you, how do you contract a, a piece of work that, where the power doesn't sit with the funder in wanting their outcome to be what they think is best for the group that we're convening? And so I think a lot of it is... I mean, you know, this is such an overused word, but it, it really is an empowerment exercise and it is a awakening exercise because, you know, many people are just so used to the dynamic that they don't even see it. It's just like how things work. And that dynamic exists internally in our own organization mm-hmm. and we've constantly got to work at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we learn our craft by our own internal dialogues and Mahmoud and I, mm-hmm. when I said, you know, we've walked through the fire, we've... We've had some very difficult conversations in our own identities and coming to the point where you can hold these multiple identities and know what you stand for together. And that's why the conversation about the future is so important. And I think the other thing, and you know, maybe we'll speak about it a bit down the line, is an acknowledgement that things are pretty broken. You know, it's it's not pretending that we're living in a country or on a continent where things are sorted. And so our vision is is also to like navigate that. Like we're living in chaos. Mm. So how do we set up a in some ways a container and an organization that is very strong internally? So our relationships are strong, and that's the most important thing that, that mm. and, and our like our house is in order. We we spend a lot of time getting our house in order internally because you're so influenced by mm. these kind of systems that you step into. And the other thing, the last thing I just want to say is the other acknowledgement when we think about the about the future is we are going to work in and continue to work in traumatized environments Mm. and I mean that's almost a daily occurrence Mm. for us you know it's just like people are triggered by anything and it's it's trauma informed you know you just you don't feel like you're an equal to people around you Mm. and that's certainly true in South Africa but it's it's very true in other African contexts as well Mm. 
So those are, you know, when we talk about the future, that's what we're trying to do. So it's, it is a little bit like, you know, knowing that we won't necessarily change the future to be positive, but we, we're going to try, make a few inroads, mm. you know. So, yeah. Mm. I'll build on that, I guess, you know, at some level, given my background and my introduction into Rios, which was quite gradual coming in initially working on a part-time basis, I was very drawn to the work and asked myself the question, why isn't more of this work happening? It's really needed, mm. you know. Yeah. As I got closer to the organization, I, I realized, well, actually, there are a number of constraints. There are constraints around how people understand or don't understand this work. There are constraints around people's willingness to shift from conventional ways of approaching complex problems to trying something different. Mm. Right. The curiosity I had was like, actually, we just need to be doing more of this work, you know. And so we, we've been on, on, on a journey in a way to, to kind of grow the organization, but also to grow the ambition about the types and the size and the complexity of the projects that we're working on. And what's becoming more and more important, and this, I think this has been at the core from the outset, but you know, growing the organization and growing the projects without ensuring that we're not paying sufficient attention to the depth, the substance, the transformation, the shifts that are required through the work is meaningless, you know. And so how do we do that? That's a big part of our conversations about today and the future. And when we think about that, it is about dealing with all these difficult dynamics, irrespective of the issues we're dealing with. Yeah on issues of equity, climate change, governance transitions. We're involved in projects across the sustainable development goals in different parts of the world and across the continent. But, you know, it comes back to questions of personal transformation, interpersonal transformation, thinking about institutions, weaving these things together. What I've found is that we can't bring that into the groups that we work with unless we're doing that work ourselves. Yeah. And so um, I think the story of our future is so, so deeply woven into the stories of our own willingness to stretch ourselves, mm. to get really uncomfortable in our organization, having the difficult conversations about race and power and gender and whatever needs to be dealt with to the extent that we can we can bring that authentically to uh, the groups and the institutions that we that we're working with. Yeah, I feel like I've got like five hundred questions to ask you <laughs> after both of you just spoke there. But the the one that's kind of like I don't know, bring the one that's forefront for me right now. So the I think, or at least I share the experience of having worked in multiple contexts all over the world, and also in the province and country where I live, but feeling like my aspirations as a young man to see major change haven't been met, you know, haven't been met. So then it's like, how do I sustain myself in the, and it's partly because the work, the work, but in its nature is so complex, right? I mean, it's a long arc, <laughs> right? And so then it's like, well, how do I sustain myself in the midst of that? And so for me, that's turned up as like doing things that are ultra local mm -hmm. in my own community where I live, where I've started a soccer club that's free to play, no obstacles to play. And it's, do you know what I mean? Like I can see it, it's local, it's changing something incredibly tangible 
Like every Sunday when I go coach kids, like, do you know what I mean? There's something in that that's immediately gratifying that somehow allows me to turn up in the work of the outside with choose differently. And I'm just wondering, I think it's a question also open for you, choose, you know, is like, what is it that you're able to do? As Because many of the people listening to the pod are stepping into or already involved in the kind of change that we're describing. Yeah. And so as practitioners, like, how do you sustain you? And you wrote about like, you know, do I let go of, do I surrender hope? Do I hold on to hope? Right. I mean, yeah. I have a thought about this. Um, a lot of the issues that we, we're dealing with feel quite close to home. Yeah. You know, and so, yes, we may be working on systems change issues, but these systems exist in our communities. You know, for example, I'm involved on a number of projects dealing with gender-based violence. Gender-based violence is an endemic challenge in our country with a history of violence. And so these are not issues that are out there. These are issues that many of us can relate to in different ways, whether it's in our communities, in our families, in our experiences. And so we need to step into that fire and sustain the energy, at least I feel called to, because in some ways there's a sense of duty and obligation to arrest patterns, intergenerational patterns of this kind of, whether it's power imbalances or abuse or shifts in equity. And so I feel called personally to do that. And I think that is also a a trap because, as you said, Tim, there's a long arc here. We're not going to solve gender-based violence in our lifetime. And so I take hope, and I know, Colleen, you you can talk about the article you wrote on, on hope, but the small and subtle shifts are the things that give me, that sustain me and give me hope as, as we do the work, you know. And these are sometimes quite intangible and we see them in rooms, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes in bigger rooms, but that's not enough. You know, it is not enough. And so we're paying attention to issues of like accountability and trying to measure at a more sort of tangible, fundamental level what the types of shifts are that we, we do need to seek. And I think they... They're achievable, but they take time. And one does need a bit of humility mm. and ongoing curiosity, I think, doing this. Yeah. 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 I mean, Mahmoud set it up really well. Uh, we like this stuff lives very close to us, these mm. issues. And I'm not saying that they don't live close to, to people in other parts of the world, but it, there is a, a, a sort of buffer of protection that is a little bit more easily accessible to a number of people to, you know, not experience it. So, you know, Mm. it just feels very raw all the time. Mm. Like you wake up in the morning and you leave your home and you're dealing with the issues, whether it's, whether it's violence, like we experience a lot of violence and that's a problem here, or whether it's poverty, it's all around. And uh, for me, as a white woman growing up in South Africa during the transition, I'm always reckoning with my privilege it's like the thing I reckon with 90% of my day. I'm like, okay, how do I show up in this environment knowing that I have more power and I'm seen in a particular way? So how do I use that power well? So I'm just like, I'm on the edge all the time. That's how it feels living here. And that's quite a, I mean, this might sound like a, also a privileged position. It's, it makes you feel quite relevant and alive, you know, that you, you're not just going through the motions of the day. Like every day will present something that, you have to 
deal with it quite a local level, you know, whether that's at your child's school or, and I won't go into those examples now, but the other thing that I do want to mention, which I think I'd love to hear both of your perspectives on this, you know, South African exceptionalism is a problem, you know, because we've, we have had the history we've had, we've had the leaders that we've had, that we are sort of centred in a number of these issues and we also think that we're unique and our challenges are unique. And I think there is something to offer the world because of, for example, that Mahmoud and I are doing that span the South African identity, but I also think that some of these things aren't unique. And, I mean, this, this speaks to probably a number of different sort of ecosystems that feel like they can't be influenced by others because they're so unique. Yeah, so I'd love to hear your sort of impressions about, you know, like what is the South African story? But the final thing I will say about the South African story, which has very much informed my notion of hope. So I grew up, like many South Africans, across the the color spectrum, really wanting a reconciled future. And, you know, I'm very cynical about reconciliation now, like 30 years in. I think it's really difficult to achieve, especially if things are still unequal. But I think reckoning and redress are interesting concepts that we are, everybody's up for, actually. If you're still living in this country, you, whether you're doing it in an angry way or whether you're doing it in a way to unify, there is a, a, a kind of a, an agency here about trying to address the atrocities of the past. And it's alive and it's very much still part of my project personally. And that's why I speak about hope in the way that I do, because I don't think in, in the South African situation or any system, you know, and I'd love to have a debate about it, that it's useful to go, let's, let's develop a shared vision for where we want to go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what everybody asks to do, right? Yeah. Oh, God. I just have an allergic reaction to that ask. You know, I, I, uh, I think that there is, like, you do need to find alignment and you do need to find consensus. But thinking that the whole collective idea of a vision is true for everybody in the same picture, given their local circumstance or past, I think then it comes at the cost of all sorts of other things that are different. And so for me, hope, hope is super important, but I like the vague idea of hope, not the specific. Like, what is a general sense of what we want to be different? What is an idea that we haven't thought about on our own that we can think about together? Yes, it might be a positive future that has all of the optimistic outcomes we want, and that's important too. But I think you start to erase the difficult conversations that need to have by just forefronting a common vision. And that's where South Africa has gone wrong. And in my, in all of my experience, facilitating processes here. Yeah. Wow. I feel like there's just all sorts of threads I want to pick up. One is that just we here at the outside, we never do visioning. Like that's just been our stance for several years. Like, nope, visioning is marginalizing or it's like so vague as to not be useful. Or so we've kind of made a stand that we want to say, what are we willing to do together rather than what are we willing to kind of see? Now, I will say and I've started to play with this idea to me, I don't even know this. I've just been writing about it around what it, what would collective imagining look like, which isn't like going toward a vision that we all agree on. Because I just think inherently there are power dynamics and whatever vision we come up with, people are marginalized, all the things that you just said. So I think like we're, we tend to think like, what are we willing to do like tomorrow? What are we willing to do? And let's just start there and see where it goes. One of the things I was really struck by is how different you all described 
I mean, obviously going in the, like you just did it, right? You all, what you talked about was going in the same direction, but you weren't using the same words. You weren't using the same conception. You don't have the same experience, right? Mm. And yet you're in an organization steering it in a direction that you want to go. And so I was thinking about how much as we talk about, like, what do you do? How do you sustain all those things? Like folks can't look for the answer. It's going to be different for each of us based on our context and our lived experience. And so I don't, and I'm really interested in how, how you keep ambition without kind of in the way that we've talked about hope. Tim and I talk about hope all of the time because I actually, for me, it feels like a real cultural legacy of being black in America. Like that, my legacy is hope. Like it is irresponsible for me to stop hoping, right? Like my people came over in chattel slavery. They lived in a way that would not imagine my life. And so like for me to just say, well, like despair, it's not an option for me culturally, but I think it's actually quite different than thinking I'm going to get to that thing or we're going to end racism in my lifetime. Nope. I am a string on a bead. You know what I mean? And I got that bead from my grandfather and I'll give it to my kids or my grandkids. And like, that's like the hope is much more like, this is what I'm here to do toward a future that I can't see. Mm. And you know, that one of the quotes that makes me the happiest, you know, MLK said the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. We've all heard that. One of our black attorney generals, federal attorney just said, it bends toward justice, but like we have to do the bending, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't just like go there because that's right. Like we have to do that. And so that's like, I find it really like, as you're both talking, I'm like, yeah, yes, 100%. I don't, if you came in here and pointed a vision that was like, oh, it's beautiful and we've got it figured out. Or, I mean, part of me, I don't know that I would believe it. Yeah. I mean, I might feel inspired for a minute, but I don't know because everything is so contextual. I might even say that's great there. I believe in morphic fields, so sure it can happen here. But like, what does that actually mean? Yeah. I feel like I'm being a little rambly, but I just really feel like you all just did what you said you're up to in the world. She said, if I can build on something that you said, and I'm going to like, ask Mahmoud to answer it, but my experience of Mahmoud, and this is where we work so well together, he is the master of bending that arc. Mm, ah. it, you know, it just, and in, in this persistent thinking, long-term way, he breaks it down. And that's where we're so good together. I'm living in the present and he's living in these steps to, to bend the arc. And, you know, maybe you can speak about those steps. He, and Mahmoud is like a big goal setter, you know, so it's like what's the number and what's the this and who are we going to work with and who are we going to hire and, yeah. So some of the stuff, you know, I feel that the work we're doing, if we just practically, I was talking, Colleen and I, the other day about uh, the impact just on our team. Our teams grow we see younger people coming into the team that have ambitions, that are starting to fulfill their ambitions. Mm. We see people thinking longer term. So that's not about the work. That's just about, about what we're able to do when we're being systematic about, you know, growing the work and in some ways growing the business of Rios. And so that's, that's not insignificant. Those are important things. And, and that's also say something about my business bias, you know, because I think that there is real value in, in enterprise. 
and even thinking about systems change and markets in integrated ways, you know, help us, I think, to imagine what's possible. There's the other side to this about bending the arc. And I think for me, it's about just letting go about letting go of the outcomes, Mm. you know, just doing the best and let it go. And I don't know what that is, but I think that arc is just so long and it's so hard to bend so we can just do the best. And so there is a saying that comes to mind, uh, uh, sort of, I think it's some prophetic quote that sort of just like describes life, what life is like, which is traveling through the desert and spending a moment resting under a palm tree and then continuing the journey, you know, and, and, and the moment of living in that sort of story is the time under the palm tree, it's the resting, you know. And so that's the time that we have. I kind of think about life in that way. It's like, this is our moment, so let's just do the best. And then the journey continues and others have to sort of do their thing. In systems change work, which which I'm in some ways new to, you know, I, I don't come from a systems change background. So far, that's been kind of a helpful orientation about doing the best and letting go. And what I'm still learning to do is, you know, not taking it personally. Mm. Yeah. Because so much about this work feels so personal. And I guess that's an ongoing journey. So when it comes to like talking to clients, potential partners, and then you're like, well, you know, there's no guaranteed outcome. The longevity of this extends way beyond our lifetimes. Certainly not within your annual fiscal, you know, budgeting process. You know, like we're working with this all. The, we're working with this all the time, and we tend to be in multi-year relationships. And of course, it's in the multi-year relationships that the depth forms and the work begins to really take shape. You know, yet the very institutions that we're working with are formed out of a mindset and have given birth to a structure that, in some ways, is in contradiction to the approach that we're bringing and the outcomes we're trying to achieve. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, hire us for enormous amounts of money to make what you're doing now obsolete and your current power structure obsolete. You know, it's like it's a tough sell sometimes, right? So that conversation about the longevity versus the reality of actually engaging in the work with funders, we find ourselves often actually, and we we work within very large institutions often, like, you know, how do the two of you engage with that? You know, both this sense of longevity and time and, and you've talked about the depth of relationship that's needed and all of that resonates so well. And yet there's an immediacy to need to prove this, you know, and even if someone intellectually gets systems change or feels the need for systems change, they're still operating in circumstances that demand something else from them as a leader who holds authority and accountability within a system. How do you navigate that in your work and your lives? I think what I've learned, and it's like it comes with some humility, like I've had to really challenge my own judgment of what I think needs to change in uh, requests that come to us. I mean, there are a few things. The one is if a client or an individual in an institution comes to us asking for help, is to just really deeply understand how they're experiencing the problem so that we're not sort of, okay, you need this big systems change like process and we can help you and here's the criteria of how we bring groups together and you know, which we've all got. We've, we've got, I think, I'm really proud of Rios's um, sort of theory of change and, and our results that we produce. But it's, it's, it's really trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the person, even when my first impression is, oh, I know exactly what you need to do. Like, that's been the really 
tough transition, but also just to break it down. Like this is, you asked the question about why is it so hard for systems change to have traction as an approach, at least systems thinking. And I think part of the reason of that is a little bit like talking about hope. It is so exclusive and so wordy and so dense and so big and so like in some ways it intimidates people. And, you know, we're wired for simplicity. We want the answer and we want one answer. And, you know, so like speaking to a client, like what is the one answer you're looking for? And then really to try and understand why and build out from there some more kind of the other ways of looking at this. And so what we would often do is try to surround that person with critical friends, like who are the people that can challenge their thinking but really support the idea, you know, so that they're not just coming at this from from one perspective. And then the other thing that we do quite often, and Mahmoud and I have got slightly different approaches to this, is, you know, we're not going to promise you the world straight away. So we're not going to, like, set the bar, like, super high. But having said that, we're not facilitators of workshops. So if you've got a problem that you've tried to solve in other ways and it's not working, okay, then maybe we can help. But come and have an experience and see if this approach helps you. And a lot of the clients that we've had for years over you know, over time, it's been a very slow boil. It's been a process for three or four months and then another thing and then a bigger thing and then a bigger thing. And, yeah, and I think there's something to be said there, but often the issues are urgent and we don't know the client and they've asked us to come in and do something big and then it's a different approach. But then we really do fast-track that uncomfortable conversation up front. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we, we don't succeed and, and often we, we, we have a breakthrough quite early on. Mm. I'll talk a bit about about that other side in particular. You know, I think that this notion of systems change, I've been maybe it's what I've been listening to in my own echo chamber, but I think it's it has gained traction, particularly if we look at the last couple of years, you know, the, the public discourse and narratives around the need for the system to change. And I think particularly if I look at what's happening with um, political situation in the North, what's happening with weakening democratic institutions and, and so on. There's a realization that something fundamentally needs to change. In as much as some, some of these things do take a long time to change, there is, I think, uh, some value in having some level of healthy skepticism about whether those that are being that are asking for systems change or those that are inviting us to support them are really interested in systems change. You know, systems change capture, <laughs> you know, or um, reputation laundering through systems change. <laughs> you know, or you could, call, you could call it other things. And so I think looking very clearly and sharply at the courage that the clients or conveners or institutions have in as much as they may have an openness and a humility and not knowing what to do, are they willing to name the issues? Are they willing to, to have, you know, real conversations? Or are they looking to appoint a consultant to do what they want the consultant to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And I've been encouraged, um, you know, particularly some of the work we've been doing is particularly around the international NGO sector and trying to, um, support a whole range of international NGOs to rethink, to reimagine that sector, to 
try and address some of the kind of colonial roots and power structures and north-south dynamics. And one of the projects we've been uh, working on, a very you know, large established international NGO that deals with uh, health issues in emergency situations. It's, it's a project on race, and they've called the project Dismantling Structural Racism. You know, that's what the project's called. And so there's no conversation about whether racism exists. There's no conversation about whether it's an issue. It's an open acknowledgement that it is an issue, it is structural, and we need to deal with it. And when you get that level of kind of bold, courageous honesty, you know, systems change becomes more possible. And so I think looking for that in, you know, in clients, in partners, does make more possible. And, and that's not always the case. And I think that it doesn't make it less uncomfortable. It's still uncomfortable, <laughs> particularly for those that are willing to take those steps and, and those that are not in those same institutions. So I think some skepticism is helpful uh, as well. Like what, particularly on climate issues, I think these days, because that's all the rage and it's a real, you know, existential issue. But, you know, I think, I think there's a need to be weary about our work and systems change being kind of co-opted to support agendas. And it's, it's sometimes not clear what's really going on with the best of our intentions and efforts. And sometimes you don't find out till you're way too along the road, right? It's just like, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, we've been in situations where it's like, oh, uh, oh, this was actually a political maneuver. This wasn't a sincere intention. But it's almost like the longer you're in it, the more you start being able to tune into that earlier and earlier along in the process, right? Yeah, no, I just wanted to say, you know, one thing that when I said Mahmoud is the master of, of bending the arc, and that's not just on, on justice issues and breaking them down and just having a long view all the time, you know, with, with quite clear milestones in between. You know, Mahmoud's got quite a gentle nature and that's kind of, it's, it's quite disarming. And he holds clients and groups like to account with such integrity. It's not huffy. It's not. And, you know, I've learned a lot about that. Like I can feel my own trigger when somebody refuses to move and they're paying us a lot of money, but they're like just defensive and stuck. And then I get upset, you know, like I think there's something under, under that. And, you know, maybe we can talk about it, but I think Mahmoud's um, faith has something to do with that too. It's just like, he just names it without any charge, like you're not coming to the party. And if you want this to succeed, you've got to come to the party, you know. And so it's, it's uh, there's also something in that, like, I mean, just on this theme of how do you bring people along? Yeah, well, you know, I think I've become less and less um, observant of my faith, so I don't want to have a conversation <laughs> about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't know. I think that whether you're, whether you're you know, someone that follows a particular kind of organized, you know, belief system or just, I think there are some spiritual truths that underpin the work, you know, and we may use different uh, words to describe it and experience it in different ways. And so that's not unique to me in any way. I think I see the same thing in you, Colleen. Mm. The one thing I'll mention in particular is just deeply trusting groups, you know, and, and just 
that deep trust and being able to walk through the fire with the group and just trusting that, you know, clarity will emerge. And, and that's, that's just a, a principle of a belief. And that's powerful. I think there's real power in that. So I've seen that in you too. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, Colleen, you kind of set up, I was actually just about to ask you, you all have talked about so eloquently, right? Like what's happening here and what's happening between you, right? It absolutely impacts the work. And I just, I think that the folks who listen are always interested in like, what are your practices? Or maybe even, you know, I, I'd be interested if you have a principle, like we just mentioned a principle he holds, and I'd love to hear that. But I'd also love to hear from the two of you, like, what are your practices for like staying in integrity and staying grounded? And I have to admit that I heard you were an ultra marathoner, Mahmoud, so I just want to hear a little bit about that too. But I'd love to hear from you all. Like, how, how are you all knit together? How are you staying grounded? What's that? What is that for you? So that's a, that's a big part of my practice. I saw this nice quote, which says, the road is a wonderful listener, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, or the best listener. And I think there's truth to that. You know, I, I get a lot of clarity and perspective from just spending time on my own running. But when I'm at my best, personally, I tend to be quite um, rigid about doing the things that I need to, to, to kind of take care of myself, you know, mm. and building good habits, um, whatever that might be, whether it's like just health and diet and, you know, trying to keep relationships clean and just trying to keep my, my head and, and my heart focused on, on the work that needs to happen or the things that are important to me, which includes getting quite clear about my inner work as well as my values and the extent to which I am able to be true to those values. So I think that's ongoing work, you know, and um, sometimes I fall off the cliff and then I have to pick myself up. This is a time of the year that I have unusual perspective, good perspective, because I've had a month of break during the summer holiday. But I was saying to Colleen and others a few days ago, by around sort of August, it all feels very muddy, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what I try and do. And then we have some things that we do together as well about just, you know, checking in very regularly and consistently at certain times in person and online. And I think our relationship started as being, you know, more about the work, but the boundaries between work and life have become so porous that, you know, our relationship has grown and evolved into a friendship you know, and a, a professional friendship and a friendship that, that is in some ways really beautiful because it's, it's navigating so, so much together, you know. So that's about some of my practice, but also about the relationship. I mean, I feel like I'm not going to say anything new because I'm sure you have the same practices, like I'm judging my, myself already, but it's so sort of in some ways um, basic and, and elemental, but it's like, have I had some exercise? Have I had some time outside? Have I had some time alone? Have I had some time with loved ones? Have I had some time with work? Am I checking in regularly with people that matter to me? Like it, there's like that sort of checklist that that I just know that I fall completely out of integrity if those things aren't consistent daily. In fact, I had a pretty close shave with burnout last year and had to, and this sort of just like COVID induced, but 
it really kind of made me quite strict about practice. And as I said, it's like it's not rocket science, but it just has to happen daily. And the, the thing that I find is really helpful to me is to uh, – there are a few things. And, you know, I think it depends on your personality as well. So, I, you know, I'm definitely – my cup gets filled with relationships and meaningful relationships. So it's important to check in daily. And that's obviously sort of my own marriage and children and also work colleagues – but there's something also to be said about um, the intensity of doing work on yourself. Yeah, this is the other thing that, that, that's been my big aha is like I'm not rigid about those practices and they're important, but I go with where I, I feel good about them. You know, so let's say like, I mean, I, I, I try to walk every day and do something outside or, and if I miss it, you know, I'm not going to judge myself about it, but if I start to force myself to walk and I'm not, I'm not loving it. I'm just going to stop it. You know, like mm -hmm. it's that sort of thing. It's like trusting your, you know what you need to stay in integrity because you've been doing it for so long and doing it in really micro movements just every day. And I used to be very existential. I think it's a sort of age thing where you just like, Oh, what's my purpose? And what's my, like, how am I going to do this? And uh, I need to have an annual retreat and have I got a therapist and have I got that? You know, like I'm like, Ugh. You know, just like do your do your thing every day. Just do your thing every day, and it'll be fine. You know. Mm -hmm. Read. I really find I, I went. To, I, I wonder if it's the same for you. Or I find like if there's if there's relationships with with others involved, it helps me in my personal practice. Like like the fact I've got a dog, and I love my dog. And if my dog doesn't get exercised, right, like actually gets me outside quite a lot. You know, the fact that like my daughter who's seventeen wants to go down the gym. And like invites me to go with her sometimes, like that gets me in the gym because like it really matters. It's like oh my gosh, a channel to my daughter, awesome. Do, do you know what I mean? Or or there's even particular places you know that I want that I've just been visiting for a long time in my life. That if I don't visit that particular place in a forest or that particular lake, you know, it's almost like a piece of me yearns for that place in the same way you might yearn for a person. And so there's something about. Even in the personal, because we think about personal practice as something that it can feel like it's something you're doing in an isolated way. But I actually think it's happening in relationship to places and animals and people. There's places I go because I know certain animals will turn up there certain times of year. I know where the cardinals nest and I want to go see them, mm. you know? And so I think there's something in, something about personal practice that's relational and, and has all of those dynamics of relationships where they're more intense over one period and less intense over another. And I just, yeah, I just really love it. What happens for Mahmoud and I in terms of our practice, just how we work together, and he was talking about the friendship and the, and the professional. So yeah, and we talk every day a number of times and we meet on a Monday to check in around the week it's these different kinds of rhythms. And then we have a bit of a parking lot around the big stuff. And then we meet for two days. And I don't know, some everything, uh, one of our um, colleagues said the most beautiful thing, there's a lot to do and it will get done. And I feel that in the relationship. Like, mm. can you be in the relationship where you don't, you don't have to deal with things immediately and you certainly don't want to be talking about big stuff in an hour-long meeting? Mm. You just know the place for it. And it might be a walk-in you know, in the forest or something else that get, lends that, but not not sitting on a Zoom call, you know, so. The point you made, Tim, about personal practice and being in relationship is it, it strikes a chord with me because part of my 
my journey into RIAS and the culture of RIAS, which is very relational, has actually awakened this relational life for me and becoming more aware and attuned and intentional about relationships, whether it's relationship with self or relationship with colleagues or relationship with family or with nature. And absolutely, it's just, it is about that. And so there is a lot of the personal practice that is quite uh, individual, but I think there's a space for that. There's time for that. And that's about, I think, relationship with oneself. But that's just a, that's just the start. So the, the thing about relationship really resonates. We're getting near to our time, my friends. And so there's a piece of me that just wants to be like, is there anything else you want to say? Which is obviously a brilliant targeted question. So there's a few things we tend to do towards the end of the pod. You know, if there's a particular poem or quote that's inspiring you that you're carrying around in your back pocket at the moment, like we'd love to hear it. Are there people you think we could invite onto this pod, you know, to be part of it? And and we kind of have a little theme running through of like, we've had people who've been major influencers of our work and mentors, as much as we're inviting colleagues and peers, as much as we're inviting people who are clients or partners in the delivery of the work into the pod for people to kind of interact with. But choose, is there anything else just by way of closing that feels important to ask at this point from your perspective, just checking in? No, I, I like those too. If you have a quote, quote or poem, and it's totally okay if you don't. And then also, yeah, anyone else, like we've been in this conversation, you think you should talk to those folks. We've actually had some anti-poetry people on the pod who are like, no, I don't, I don't like poetry. Sorry, not bringing a poem, you know, And but, but they have a beautiful quote and then a song, didn't they? Anyway. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I think some themes that are really juicy to me at the moment, so this is, you know, my own interest, so there's some super skilled, amazingly wise people that work with trauma and work in trauma spaces. And how do you do this work knowing that you're in an imperfect like place in terms of centeredness of, you know, how people are showing up and what they might bring and how to deal with that. I think questions around like these, like what Mahmoud was saying around, you know, the challenges of, of, systems that are breaking down like I think the the notion of democracy is a really interesting exploration and I'm I'm not sure if you're asking questions about that too and then I sort of yeah I also wonder about like there's such a justice lens on the impacts of COVID and lots of interesting things so I guess I'm a bit more issues based on these things like to ask people less than the sort of facilitator and the the generic clients who's trying to do collaboration work or systems change work, but actually dig into the content. That's great. And then from there you can sort of extract the the principles or the practices or the, you know, and you know, we know loads of those kind of people. So, so, so I guess the question back to you is where do you want to take this conversation in the future? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, you know, every season is different. We we're laughing because every season is different and we've actually got a pretty full slate for this particular season. But I just to share back, one of the things we're doing is kind of a series on public health workers who are working with COVID right now Mm -hmm. and specifically around issues of disproportionality and marginalization, right? So we have the series around COVID and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So that feels really topical and people are really excited about it to hear these leaders who are working in public health and talk about Mm -hmm. what the things that have been obvious for years, but now are, you cannot ignore them. They've been ignored for years, although they've been obvious. So I think, I mean, that sounds, I love the idea. I mean, just being based in the US, like your questions around democracy are 
Mm. <laughs> front and center right now. Um, so that sounds really, really interesting. Mm. Yeah, totally. To me, just kind of person like, oh, what would that look like? Yes, most of our listeners are in North America, but I think most of our listeners listeners are interested in what's happening in other parts of the world. And in the US, like for me personally, it's really helpful. It'd be really helpful to get a lens on democracy that's not here. I'm so in it. You know, we're so in it right here, right now, as well as the race conversation outside of the US. Because I think the US and North America has a lot to contribute. I think we have a lot of analysis and sophistication, but we have a lot of exporting our ideas as if they are universal too. So I'd really love to, you know, hear more about that. I don't have a particular quote or person. There is one person uh, whose work I've really been enjoying, Adrienne Marie Brown. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, she, I've just finished her book called Holding Change, which is quite a powerful piece of work. So I think she'd be something, someone amazing to have on your show. But also... You know, what I am interested in beyond the issues is the intersection between activism and systems change. Mm-hmm. Mm. And thinking about folks that are, that don't style themselves as systems change conveners and facilitators, but are doing that work in a different way and are really maybe see themselves as activists, but are really working the system and in sometimes occupying you know, positions that, that may be quite facilitative or that are uh, neutral. And I know that, you know, there are tensions and challenges with, with any kind of starts, but I think that that intersection between the two areas would be quite interesting to explore. I'd be interested in learning more about that. I don't know if we're out of time and I'm really, um, I'm not attached to sharing it, but I, I have pulled up a poem that came to mind. Yes, please. Okay. All right. So look, it's an old favorite. You probably know it well, and I love it, and I love coming back to it. And it's uh, Mary Oliver's Wild Geese. Mm, wonderful. Okay. And I think it's it, it, the reason why I pulled it up is that it was a lot like running through our sort of reflections with you today. Mm-hmm. Wild geese, mm-hmm. you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you. I just feel enormously great. I mean, I, I've got about halfway through, I was like, these two people are amazing. <laughs> I just like, I just feel enormously grateful. I mean, for the for the time, but also just like the willingness to just open up and be in this conversation and reveal part of yourselves and, and not only your work, but part of yourselves through the conversation we've been on this pod. So like, just like, thank you so much for not only what you said, but the way you've turned up. Thank you. It's flown by and um, it's felt quite vulnerable. And thank you for just holding the space to be vulnerable. Yeah, I think you've both modeled that in your previous season beautifully. 
opening up on a whole bunch of things and so that was also quite a treat for everyone so thank you for inviting me and us and it's been it's been great wow thank you so much 